0: From Luminary and Built-It Productions, it's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, Bob Rosenberg, former CEO of Dunkin' Donuts.
1: I guess as a 25-year-old, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think I was more anticipation and excitement than, I, than it was anxiety and fear. And, uh, and I thought I could see a way clear to what to do with the business.
0: Now at age 25, Bob took the reins of the family business and over the course of 35 years, turned Dunkin' into one of the largest coffee and donut chains in the world.
2: to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: About a decade after Bob Rosenberg became CEO of Dunkin' Donuts, the board almost threw him out. The company was hemorrhaging cash because of an overly ambitious expansion. Franchisees were in open revolt, some of them even serving burgers and fried chicken. And not enough people were buying donuts. In the early 1970s, Dunkin' Donuts was on the ropes. But in a sudden twist of fate, one of the franchise owners came up with a product that actually saved the company. A product you probably know if you've been to a Dunkin' Donuts shop in the past 40 years. And that fateful moment taught Bob Rosenberg how to be a better leader and how to listen to the people around him. Dunkin' Donuts was the family business. Bob's dad, Bill, founded the company in Massachusetts in the 1950s and eventually grew it to 100 franchise locations by 1963, the year he handed over the reins to his son, Bob. Bill, Bob's dad, initially got into the food business after World War II, he started selling food from a truck to construction workers in and around Boston and eventually opened a shop called Open Kettle.
1: Open Kettle opened in 1948 and my father had a, took in a partner. His brother-in-law uh, was a CPA and a guy he admired a lot and took him in as a full partner. And the business grew with six depots around New England and 150 trucks. It was a, a flourishing business for a while.
0: Wow mainly selling coffee and donuts
1: and sandwiches you know snacks and um my view was that i think vending machines started to appear on the scene around that tier- period of time and the business started to falter hmm. so in a way to try to diversify they basically opened uh, a donut shop hmm. and they built a california style fishbowl store and uh sitting around trying to decide what to name this new venture Someone said, well, you pluck a chicken, you dunk a donut. And I think my dad said at the time, that's it. And it was transformed into a brand new spanking new store in 1950 called Dunkin' Donuts. It was an overwhelming success. (laughs) Wow. Unfortunately, the partnership started to flag. With his brother-in-law. Partners didn't get along. And ultimately... In 1955, they had a buy and sell agreement for the then book value of the business, which was 350 thousand dollars. And uh, I highly encouraged my dad to buy to buy. And and his brother in law Harry Winokur, he took
0: his money and he ended up opening up a competitor called Mister Donut. That's exactly right. So um, this was a family mess.
1: It is a family feud that of epic proportions. It lasted for years, and. Uh, we call it the Donut Wars.
0: The Donut Wars began 1955, and Mr. Donut was your biggest competitor. That's at the time. That's correct. And and Dunkin' Donuts was a franchise operation, right? These were all independently run franchises.
1: There were some company-owned stores. There were probably 10 mm-hmm. or 11 or 12. I can't remember the exact number. They were company-owned, but the remainder of them were franchised.
0: And was Dunkin' Donuts doing well, or was it struggling?
1: Duncan was struggling given the fact that it was such a diverse business. We were in so many different activities. What were you in besides Donuts? Well, we had a vending machine company called Menumat. We had industrial mm-hmm. cafeterias, 20 or 30 cafeterias around New England called industrial cafeterias. We owned three or four pancake houses called Duncan Donuts House of Pancakes. We had uh, 11 or 12 by the time I got there. Howdy Beef and Burgers, which were McDonald knockoffs. Uh, we had a Uh, an an ownership in uh, in a company locally in Boston called Leaning Tower of Pizza. Uh, We had um, a delicatessen in Providence, Rhode Island called Willie's. Hmm.
0: It sounds, I mean, on the one hand, diversification makes sense, but it God, it sounds like a bit of a mess. Was it a mess?
1: It it was a mess. And uh, that's why they began the management at the time started to change the menu and broaden the offering dramatically.
0: And what do they offer?
1: Well, they offered hamburgers, and they offered hot dogs, and they offered full breakfast. In
0: Dunkin' Donuts?
1: In Dunkin' Donuts stores. Wow. They had lost confidence in the donut and coffee operation, and all the restaurants, 26 of them, that opened before I got there, were basically selling hamburgers and hot dogs and breakfast food no different than a diner, with anywhere from 18 to 90 seats. So it was sort of a, a, um, a hodgepodge of different businesses.
0: Huh. And meanwhile, um, you go on. I think around that time to to go to Cornell to study um, hotel re- their School of Hotel Restaurant Management. Yep. Uh, you get your degree, and then you went on to 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 get a, a, an MBA
1: at Harvard Business School. That's correct. My father, while I was in second year in business school, tried to sell the business for a million and a half dollars.
0: Yeah, tell me the story. I mean, he. <laughs> this is amazing. So in, in the early 60s, your dad tried to sell Dunkin' Donuts for a million and a half dollars. And, by the, and he couldn't, from what I understand,
1: right? Yeah, we were earning about $100,000 in pre-tax profits, and no private equity investor would give it to him. He wanted to be a millionaire after taxes.
0: Yeah, he went to private equity investors and said, hey, I'll sell you my company for a million and a half dollars. And nobody wanted it? That's correct. And he wanted to sell it because it, he didn't feel like it was doing well at the time.
1: He wasn't doing well. His competitor was overtaking him. Yeah. He didn't have the management team to straighten it out. They didn't yep. know quite what to do.
0: And did you think that you would end up working with your dad, or did you think you, would, you were going to do your own thing?
1: I thought I would end up in the family business, but wasn't quite sure where and how. All that hadn't been worked out. We really never discussed specifics. But it was a business I'd grown up in, I loved, and, and thought I would be joining him. And it's... Um, little did I have any idea that circumstances would dictate that he had reached such a crossroads in his life and in the business. And my uncle, who my father had historically portrayed as a bean counter and sort of a millstone around his neck, uh, was now being um, put forward for the Horatio Alger Award and written up in magazines for the emerging donut empire he was Uh building. And my dad at the time, he he didn't know quite what to do, and I think the, the, the pain of not doing as well as his partner, having his partner overcome his success, was a, a very painful thing for him. I think it was at that time that he turned to a then newly minted MBA, fresh out of school, and asked me to take over the helm. How old were you? 25 years old.
0: 25 years old, he asks you to take over... This company, all the entire portfolio, right? All the
1: different That's businesses. Correct. Yep. The company I took over wasn't called Dunkin' Donuts. It was called Universal Food Systems and comprised about seven or eight small businesses, Dunkin' Donuts among them.
0: Um, First of all, uh, I mean, yes, you're the son of the founder, but did did some of the people and other people in management, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine that they were they had to work for you, but, I mean, probably a little odd at the time to be working for such a young
1: guy, right, don't you think? They were stunned Yeah, when he announced it, absolutely stunned.
0: Hmm. Were you nervous as a 25-year-old, or were you confident given that you kind of grew up in the food business?
1: It's That's a great question. As I look back, I suspect I had a good deal of anxiety. I remember talking to my wife at the time about, you know, if I were to fail at this job, you know, where would I go? Who would hire a failed CEO into an entry-level job? Might have, might have not already destroyed some of my career choices. But I, I, I guess as a 25-year-old, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think I was more anticipation and excitement than, I, than it was anxiety and fear. And uh, and I thought I could see a way clear to what to do with the business.
0: So you're 25, um, you take over this company, and what do you start to do? How are you going to start to
1: turn the ship around? Tell me about the plan that you put in place. Basically, uh, I, we we met as a, a management team, and we focused on three things, what I call three Ps, planning, people, and products, and we began to plan as a small management team and group and we would focus all our energy and attention on a standard donut shop in selected markets where we could build our brand. As far as people were concerned, I began to start to recruit some of my classmates from business school Hmm. who came around and were willing to join. And that was a hard sell to get a Goldman Sachs banking exec to come to Massachusetts to help a, a startup donut and coffee company. But they did come, and they were highly instrumental in the success of the business. And so that was the people part. And the product part is we basically decided to focus on a standard 20-seat donut shop. And we would sell coffee and donuts. And at the time, we sold coffee in a porcelain cup around a question mark counter, and uh, our varieties of donuts. And we washed the coffee cups in a dishwasher. But we standardized the operation, and we tried as best we could. To focus our growth in certain markets where we thought we could build advertising. Hmm.
0: You decided to take the company public and went you in public in, I think, in 1968. Um, I think you were the third food service company to go public after uh, McDonald's and KFC. Um, why? What was the reason for that?
1: You know, basically, uh, as the company did better, as I, as I assume responsibility, my father kept trying to sell the company. And uh, within a few years, I remember being at the Waldorf Towers uh, in the hotel suite of Nate Cummings, who was the owner then of Consolidated Foods, Sarah Lee and other food businesses. And most food manufacturers had awoken to the fact that on most of their food, now half of the food in the United States was being sold through restaurants and half being sold through supermarkets. They were all diversifying. So then, I was looking at a seven and a half million dollar offer f- from Nate Cummings, and hmm. uh, my dad and I were there. And I resisted the sale, and I had to promise my dad that we, he would see the money he wanted as fast as we could, um, and by going public instead of selling the whole company. Wow! So the pressure was on me to, to to keep my promise to my father to make him the millionaire he always wanted to be.
0: Right. So so you got this offer for seven million. Your dad wanted to take it. You said, "No, I think this company's worth more and has longer legs. Let's not cash out. Let's go public. That's correct. So all right, so sixty eight, you become a publicly traded company, and that's a different proposition because you are now doing quarterly calls and you've got to answer to shareholders, and the stock price becomes really important. Um, what kind of challenges did that create for you as a CEO?
1: It was exhilarating at mm-hmm. first. The stock opened at $20 a share. And by the end of the first month in February of 1968, it was selling at something like uh, 38 or $40. Wow. I can't remember. It, it, and so by my 30th birthday, which was 1968, the company was worth something like 120 or 150 million dollars wow and it was intoxicating and uh, the the strategies that we put into effect the ones i recalled earlier were working well and uh, we were intent at least i was intent on trying to keep the same beat up of growing earnings at an unsustainable rate of 50 percent a year
0: and what was that in order to do that what did you think you had to do
1: Well, then I made a mistake, (laughs) a a terrible mistake. Which was? I changed the mission of the company from being a very focused donut and coffee company and began to make the same mistake that my father had made years earlier. I decided that the company was a franchising company Hmm. and that if we could grow the donut business this quickly and this well and we had to keep up a rate of growth that we had historically found in the first couple of years of public ownership that we should start to franchise other businesses as well. And that was a terrible error.
0: So the franchise, um, I mean, you had a franchise model for the donut businesses and, and what the idea was to just expand that out even more rapidly?
1: To other brands. So I had met this fellow, Haddon Salt, at a franchise oh, convention. Oh, yes, H Salt, Fish and Chips. H salt and Fish and Chips, and Haddon and I talked a lot. And so we started our own Fish and Chips chain.
0: What what was the name of the fish and chips chain that you started?
1: Charles H. Goodlight & Sons.
0: Okay, so you, you had the donut business. You expand to fish and chips restaurants. What other kind of things did you expand to?
1: We didn't open any other businesses. Okay. We explored lots of opportunities. But we began to have trouble. And I was expanding into too many markets with the donut business, not right. aware of the pre-existing competition and different habits different competitive sets in different parts of the country so there were a a range of problems and I I had really a a small organization and I had stretched it too far too fast and I was doing too many things both internationally and domestically changed the mission of the business and it began to really have trouble Hmm. and 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 I was being driven by all the wrong reasons without a real key understanding of what we were good at, what our core competence was, and what a reasonable rate of growth was. So I set the wrong mission and I set the wrong objective. (laughs) And those were the two drivers that, you know, luckily recovered in time to keep my job, but left a lasting impression on me on the importance of getting those things right (laughs) and the cost of getting them wrong, not only to yourself, but to the entire organization, all the franchisees, and everybody who made a living from it. So you felt under
0: pressure to keep performing, to keep the stock price soaring. And to do that, you thought, we better just expand, 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 expand. And it sounds like the the reason why the stock was doing so well before the expansion was because you had a relatively manageable business, you had a good product, and, you know, people liked it. Um, and you thought, let's just replicate that, but at scale. But it, it turns out that in a lot of markets, it just didn't work. People didn't want it.
1: Is that right? That's correct. It was a harder lift in certain places than in others. And we were insensitive to that. I was.
0: And, and did you have a lot of anxiety at that time? I guess that sounds like you did. I mean, God, the pressure of keeping that stock price high and keeping your, you know, the analysts happy and shareholders happy and all that stuff.
1: It, it was a it was a horrible time. It was it, yeah. It was uh, crushing actually, but but a learning experience. I, uh, and my mm-hmm. franchisees at the time, the Dunkin' Donor franchisees, were starting to feel the, the impact of a management that was distracted, and <laughs> they began to get restive. Yeah. Down began to sue. They, I think, they all got together in 1972
0: and sued you for four times the company's net worth. That's correct, on a class
1: action suit. Oh. When you found out about that lawsuit, do you remember how you reacted? My first reaction was to be angry about many of the— there were only eight franchisees that formed the class. They had petitioned the court, so it wasn't all of them. By that time, I probably had five or 600 stores open. But uh, it was to get angry uh, and to blame them. They were among some of our more successful owners. And it was while I was sitting in a chair in my living room reading David Halberstam's Best and Brightest Hmm. about the Kennedy and Johnson's administration of the Vietnamese War and how that, that leadership of the country was not going into the hamlets and towns in Vietnam to really find out what was going on, that I realized he could have just as well been talking about us. Wow. And so it was a transformational shift in my thinking and, and our actions as a company about the fact that we as leaders bear responsibility if we have those problems we can't lay the blame on anyone else but ourselves we should take a hundred percent of the responsibility we decided then that one of our activities we would all visit a hundred or so stores a year and we should invite the franchisees in to help us correct the ills that we created change our strategy and it was a, 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 a very important, momentous occasion in the history of the business, all stemming from a book. Wow. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
0: If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill, and Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today. I understand that that even at that time, um, the board asked you to resign, but you convinced them to give you one last shot.
1: That's right. The board had decided that it was time to move on and uh, asked me if I wouldn't find my successor. I was a little bit shocked. I said, I don't think that's my responsibility. I think that's the board's responsibility. But I I asked them for another quarter. I said, I think, and I believe this to my very core, that we had identified the problems that I had created,
2: Hmm.
1: that we had worked together to remedy them. And we had. And we stopped all of the the divergent activities. We focused back on the business. We invited the franchisees in back to help us. And we were now on a new course, and I was absolutely convinced that the worst was behind us. Luckily, it was. I left the room. They must have discussed my fate for an hour or two. I can't remember, but I'm sure beads of perspiration were forming yeah, on my forehead. Right. I re entered the boardroom, and they said, all right, we've decided to give you another quarter. We'll reconvene in another th- three months and see if, in fact, the business is corrected.
0: By the way, at that point, was the business losing money?
1: it did in 1973 we lost 1.7 million dollars
0: wow so you had a quarter to start to turn things around but from what i read there was something that happened that year that was also transformational and that would eventually be part of the turnaround and it was in the form of small little donut holes is that right
1: that's that's correct that was the year i got a call from our franchise owner in Hartford, Connecticut, a fellow by the name of Bob Demery. And he excitedly told me about how his wife, Edna, had uh, taken this, the center cuts of the donuts we used to take and just sell them in little prepackaged cellifying bags on little potato chip clips around Halloween time, but that she had built a new kind of cutter that would just cut the holes bigger, one fifth of a donut size and uh, started to put jelly in them and f- and finish them and pile them high in the showcase that was in each store. And it was selling 20 or 30% of his business was now in these donut holes. Wow. And we got in a car that the very next day. Uh, the president of the company, Tom Schwartz, myself, and head of the marketing, and we drove down to Hartford. And lo and behold, here were this, all of these beautiful little delicious treats all piled high in the case and we knew right then and there that we had a winner when we came back we asked the agency to help us brand them
0: like a a branding agency to help you brand them because you 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 knew right then and there this was going to be a thing you were going to do
1: yeah well the sales spoke for themselves I mean for for a retail business to enjoy a 20% uptick in sales that's momentous I mean that's that's a head turner and and so yes we, we knew we had a winner and uh we came back, and the agency said, well, why don't we call them penny poppers? Penny
0: poppers? Yeah. Pen- like, well, because why? Why would they want to call them penny poppers?
1: Well, in 1973, you could really actually sell. they oh, cost you know, a penny. They were inexpensive. They were, okay, they, I gotcha. And we said, I don't think we can keep them at pennies. So The Wizard of Oz every year was on television, shown for kids and. uh and someone suggested, why don't we see if we can get the little the name for the little people that are in the Wizard of Oz. The name was Munchkins. Hmm. And we found out that Jack's Cookie Company in Louisiana had the rights to the name. They hadn't used it. And he negotiated the rights for a dollar a year to the name Munchkins. And, wow. And we were off and running and it was a huge success despite a terrible economic time.
0: Whatever happened to that lawsuit, that class action lawsuit that the other franchisees filed?
1: slowly as we had invited franchisees to come back and help us and we began to do our store visits uh, the tide had turned in terms of sentiment and activity. Uh, 66% of the franchisees opted out of the lawsuit so took Mm -hmm. all of the sort of teeth out of the lawsuit which was I think a historic kind of reaction and I think that was a result of the fact that the franchisees really did trust us and didn't want to see the company put in any jeopardy. It sounds like I mean, the parallel with
0: Halberstam's book is great. You you were almost like, you know, Bob McNamara with your, you know, whiz kids around you. Uh, everybody, you know, smart, um, Ivy League um, degrees, et cetera, et cetera. But maybe you weren't listening enough to the people who actually were on the ground in those first many years. And, and then this Munchkins thing happened and maybe kind of opened your eyes to listening to your – your franchisees and the people who, you know, who, who had their eyes on the ground?
1: Halberstam called the problem with the Kennedy and Johnson administration and the best and the brightest our country had to offer, called it a, a Greek word, hubris, mm-hmm. which is a word for arrogance. Yep. And we were guilty, not everybody, but me particular. The success of the early years and the fact that we made very few mistakes and, and enjoyed such immense success from the time I was 25 to 30 – created i'd have to admittedly say someone who had hubris in his early 30s and and the company and everybody suffered as a result of that and it's when we discovered that owned it apologized for it uh, began to care more deeply and I think the, the the new product introduction was only one way that was manifested the other ways it was manifested was the time that we spent with our field supervisors and our store owners we created an advisory council and invited franchisees in to help us put them on committees got them to work with us when we took full responsibility that was our job as leadership to to create a system that would provide fair returns for the risk and the labor that they were putting into their business day in and day out. So it was a number of things, but it was the shift in thinking and the acceptance of our own hubris, and my hubris I would say, that that, that was sort of the turning point. <laughs>
0: It sounds like the 1980s um, you really started to take off. I mean, I think at one point, Peter Lynch, the the famous um, Fidelity fund manager, he referred to Duncan Jones as one of the greatest ten baggers. Um, he you know companies that that brought him huge returns. Uh, what what
1: explains the success in the 1980s? I think uh, a willingness to be adaptable. It's just So during that period of time, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, we experimented with additional advertising to try to create uh, a national brand and national advertising. We asked the franchisees to raise their advertising spend from 2% of sales to 4%. And we, we, over time, were able to migrate to a bigger megaphone to talk to our customers. Our marketing department began to develop uh, new product introductions in an organized way that met consumers' needs, and we grew much more modestly. And then ultimately, as we got our feet under ourselves and started to roll, we started to slowly but surely ramp up the amount of growth that we could sustain successfully.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious about a decision that you took in in the late 80s. It it sounds like Dunkin' Donuts was doing very well in the 1980s, um, but that, that year, 1988, you decided to invest in Chili's, the the fast casual restaurant. Um, why? What was going on? Did you feel like in order for for the business to survive, you had to diversify?
1: In the sort of the mid-80s, late 80s, uh, we embarked on maybe four major uh, changes. We changed the configuration of the store and it went away from the porcelain cups and the question mark counter to a self-service system where we used paper cups and we then also decided to uh, to experiment uh, by happenstance. Uh, franchisees in the Philippines were experimenting with satellite locations, and I went to the Philippines to stop them from doing that. To only lo and behold, find out they were onto an idea every bit as powerful or more powerful even, than even Edna Demery's Munchkins.
0: Uh, and what was that? What was the idea?
1: Basically, the the board of the Philippine licensee, the the wives. Uh, they were among the well-to-do of Manila, had their, their their household staff take donuts to local convenience stores and movie theaters and and petroleum stations and sell donuts and coffee uh, from those stores. And uh-huh. that's not the way we had advertised. No. We made all our product on premise. Uh, we served it fresh. Our advertising campaign from Fred the Baker, who's made the f- famous commercials of time to make the donuts. Yep.
0: He was like your mascot, your national mascot. Yeah, he
1: yep. was our spokesman. Yep. He said, uh, Bet your supermarket donuts don't take this kind of pain.
0: Meantime you've got you've got donuts that are being sold on in carts at the movie theater.
1: Exactly. So and, my job yeah. was to go to the Philippines on my easy trip to stop doing this. And And lo and behold, when I get there, I find out that it's overwhelmingly successful. Wow. And I'm traveling on this trip with the COO, my close friend, Tom Shores. And on the trip back, we were talking about, well, what would the world look like if we were to change the way we go to market? And it was a little bit like Coca-Cola when they decided to. Coca-Cola was only sold over soda fountains in drugstores until they decided to bottle and take it. And that was a shift that we made half the space of our retail stores was a bakery. So we decided to centralize production of the bakery goods. Business had migrated much more toward beverages than it was to donuts. And even though the Dunkin' Donuts was the name, donuts were now a much smaller part of our business. And we were basically a beverage business. Wow. And then the last strategy, the fourth thing we put in place was what was called now casual dining. And that the 6% same-store sales increase that was... Pretty much our standard for our model was now faltering and falling to 3%. And then we thought, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to start another business like Charles Goodlight after my lack of success with that. So we thought the best and safest strategy was to take a license from Chili's to try that, which we did. Yeah.
0: All right. So you... You decide that well, you you see that's that that the six percent growth is not happening, slowing down. So chilies seems like a good good option to invest in Chili's. Um But now you are doing something that you kind of got away from when you first took over the business. You're you're starting to explore these different options. So you're did, did anything in your in your head say to you, uh, Bob? I don't know about this chili thing. Maybe you know. Maybe we should just stick to our guns here on, on Dunkin' Donuts? Or, or did you think, we got to do this?
1: Well, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think yeah. it, was a, <laughs> it was a viable strategy. But but quite truthfully, I mean, part of your job and the art of management is to get the right balance between experimentation and exploitation. Yeah. And so in the 80s, we tried four or five major things, international development, changing the configuration of the store to self-service, creating satellite locations, going to market a different way, and this initiation with Chili's. And I wish I could have been smart enough to know which ones would work before I tried them and which ones were a bridge too far. But that's sort of the art of
0: management. Yeah. And so uh, there you go. You got into Chili's. But it actually, um, this is something that really bothered your dad. Your dad was not happy about this decision that you made.
1: That's correct. He thought it. He thought it was a bridge too far, and he decided that uh, he was going to sell his stock and, and and retire from the board.
0: Did that? Did that? Um, at least temporarily damage your relationship.
1: Uh, yes, mm-hmm. yes, it did. Uh, but but the relationship in family business is often challenging. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It wouldn't be the first one. To, to lay that claim, uh, despite the fact that my father turned the business over to me and my mission was really to beat my uncle, which we did handily. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, a founder, even though he doesn't have an office, doesn't come to the office, never really sees himself as retired, of despite course. the fact that he's... And, and I did you know, at 25, yeah. I didn't understand all those yeah. things. Yeah. But as time went by, I didn't. And, and this was his baby in his mind. and uh, And I can understand his position.
0: Yeah, but of course he was a major shareholder, and when he sold his stock, that wasn't that was a public people found out about that, right?
1: That's correct. What happened was, uh, it was the end of the nineteen eighties, and it was a time of, of feverish hostile takeovers. Yeah, and we got struck by a hostile bidder from Canada,
0: a guy named George Mann, I think. Um, That's correct. And, and, yep. and essentially, just just to be clear, like what he was doing was buying up a lot of stock. In Dunkin Donuts? That's correct. And he was trying to buy enough to own a majority of the company. That's exactly right. Was it a stressful time for you?
1: Incredibly stressful. Um, This fellow George Mann, he was a real estate owner and didn't have any experience in our business and wasn't quite sure how he bumbled into the the offer to make it in the first place. And, uh, you know, this was a business that we all loved and worked hard for and loved our customers, our franchisees, our employees, our staff. And basically, I saw all of that at stake. Wow.
0: So you you fought this takeover bid and you found a friendly buyer. This is an English uh, liquor conglomerate, Allied Alliance. They bought it in 1990 for $325 million dollars. What did that mean for you? Is that did
1: that mean that you
0: were uh, did did you stay on as CEO when they bought it?
1: I did, I did. I loved the business, and I wanted to make sure the transition was successful and everybody was safe. So I stayed on for another nine years, and and I actually got along well with a couple hmm. a couple of the guys I reported to. I had four different bosses in nine years. And they were, they were a good buyer. They had bought Hiram Walker's in Canada mm-hmm. away from the Reichmans in a hostel bid. They were good shepherds of brands. They yep. were nice people. I enjoyed my time with the British and quickly they made me CEO of another brand that they had owned since the 70s, Baskin Robbins. Hmm. And when I took over, over Baskin Robbins, I had taken the marketing head of Duncan and moved him to Glendale, California, the Baskin headquarters. And he took over Baskin-Robbins as president, and he immediately began to look for a beverage to sell in Baskin-Robbins So They'd never had a beverage. And he found that the, the flavor department of Baskin was terrific. The company that had come up with Jamocha Almond and Pralines and Cream, these great all-time American favorites, had great capabilities for cold brew coffee way before anybody had ever heard of cold brew coffee. Mm. And so he introduced a, a product called Cappuccino Blast, which was a huge success at Baskin. And despite the fact that I was running both businesses, it still took me a couple of years to, to transfer that technology and the willingness of the Duncan people to experiment. And they came up with Kulata, and that added like $200 million piece of business almost overnight to the Duncan brand and the three to five hour time period in the mid-afternoon snack, where we didn't really have as strong an offering as we wished in terms of a cold beverage. And that was a tremendous launching platform Mm. for more cold beverages. And today I see that Duncan is rolling out more and more cold beverages and caffeinated beverages all the time. They have nitro brew. They have cold yeah. brew. Iced coffee in the 90s was only sold on the state of Rhode Island. Most people don't realize that. Mm-hmm. And and we introduced that to the United States back in 1990. I'm not sure, 94, 95. We introduced iced coffee to America.
0: When you stepped down and retired from the company, um, I mean, you left it and it was in a great place, $2 billion in sales and 4,000 locations and... I mean, this was a, the, the brand of the business your dad started. And did you kind of just walk out and turn off the lights and, and kind end of your, end your affiliation?
1: <laughs> well, uh, the answer to your question is, yes, I did. I left for another career. Um, I basically um, decided that what I wanted to do was generative things. And I became a, an adjunct professor at Babson College and taught entrepreneurship and franchising and I went on boards of of other food service companies like Sonic and Domino's. But my feeling about moving on was once your time is there, you should leave gracefully uh, and have a a fond farewell and leave your successors to carry on. And that's what I did. What's your favorite donut? (laughs) I love uh, a jelly stick or a lemon stick. Uh, Hmm. So that's a cake donut. It's in the form of like a crull of a straight case. Yep. And then uh, in either end, you put the filling and it's crunchy on the outside, soft and cakey with a delicious and a case of jelly, which is a raspberry apple filling or a lemon. I mean, <laughs> and, and, and that, and that goes along with a just a plain old honey dip. And donuts are a delicious, delicious product, a great treat.
0: When you think about your, your journey as a leader, Do you think that you were born with the skills and the qualities, natural qualities that, that if there are natural qualities, that made you a leader? Or do you think you actually learned how to become a leader over the course of your career?
1: You know, I think that that leadership is part art and part science, uh, but I do believe it can be learned. I don't think you have to be a born leader. I can't look at myself and decide which came where. I can tell you this without any equivocation. It's been a journey. Of growth continuously the willingness to read to attend seminars hmm. and I wish I was born with all of those skills and insights as a 25 year old when I took over but I wasn't yeah so a lot of it came through error mistakes pain and the willingness to accept pain I, and I think that's part of leadership is that uh, when things go wrong you take the pain and when things go right, you share the glory. And mm-hmm. I was also surrounded by extraordinary, extraordinary team, which I loved. I loved the people I worked with, and I loved the business. And I didn't, I, I didn't mind accepting responsibility when I when I had a lot to learn. I was still a kid. Yeah, I was still learning. So I sort of formed a feeling and a philosophy that so long as i had breath in my body i could always have a second and third chance hmm. so i could kick a stone make a mistake forgive myself and live with it and carry on just don't give up yeah and persistence i think I, I, where it comes it's genetic or whether i learned it i i really can't tell you but i have it and 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 that and that's a very valuable commodity to have if you're going to find yourself in a position of leadership because Problems will occur. Life is lumpy, both in commercial life and in personal life. And it's the ability to sort of pick yourself up and and carry on and accept your foibles, remedy them and move on.
0: That's Bob Rosenberg, former CEO of Dunkin' Donuts. Bob has a new book out. It's called Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions.
2: Planning for your next trip?